Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. Many thanks to all of our listeners who follow the podcast as we explored books, essays, plays, and poetry on the theme of totalitarianism and ideology. We think we're off to a great start and hope to grow our audience, so please do spread the word about enduring interest. Today we move on to our second theme. Our episodes over the next few months will be devoted to the topic of liberal education. To begin this series, we'll be discussing two essays by the political philosopher Leo Strauss, What is Liberal Education, first published in 1961, and Liberal Education and Responsibility, first published in 1962. These essays can be found most easily in two volumes, An Introduction to Political Philosophy, 10 Essays by Leo Strauss, or Liberalism, Ancient and Modern. I'm very pleased to have two guests who are extremely well-suited to take up both Leo Strauss and liberal education. They are Michael and Catherine Zuckert, both Nancy Reeves-Drew Professor Emeritus in the Department of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. They also taught at Carleton College for many years and then at Fordham University and are now visiting professors at Arizona State University's School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership. Their scholarly work is too extensive to cover here, but let me mention some recent publications and a couple of books relevant to our discussion today. Catherine's most recent book is Machiavelli's Politics. She's also the editor of Leo Strauss on political philosophy, responding to the challenge of historicism and positivism. This volume is a transcript of an introductory course Strauss gave at the University of Chicago in 1965. Michael recently completed a book manuscript called A Nation So Conceived, Abraham Lincoln and the Paradox of Democratic Sovereignty. Finally, they've co-authored two books, The Truth About Leo Strauss and Leo Strauss and the Problem of Political Philosophy. Especially relevant to our discussion today is chapter 11 of this latter book, which takes up Strauss's two essays on liberal education. Well, welcome, Michael and Catherine Zucker, to Enduring Interest podcast. I'm excited to speak to you today about two these two Strauss essays on uh, liberal education. Um, glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Uh, Catherine, why don't we start with just the basic kind of biographical question about, about Leo Strauss. Um, he lived a, a pretty good long life, so talk to <laughs> us about who he was and, and where he taught and maybe a little bit of his intellectual biography if you want. Sure. Um, so Strauss was born in September 1899 in a small town in northern Germany. Uh, his background is fairly modest. His parents were conservative or orthodox Jews, and in the home they obeyed the ceremonial laws. But um, they lived on a farm. His father and uncle ran a livestock business, which they had inherited from their father. And one place Strauss says that as a boy, he dreamed of the future in which he would read Plato and raise rabbits. Well, as you know, he did read Plato a lot and wrote about him, but he didn't raise rabbits. No, no, no rabbits on campus at Chicago. There might have been, right? Well, yeah, maybe running through the hedges, but um, 
I guess his parents had higher aspirations for him because they sent him to gymnasium in Marburg and where in 1917, his last year, he apparently became a Zionist. But that didn't keep him from joining the German army, which he served in for a year after he graduated from gymnasium in 1918. And then he went back to the University of Marburg, where he studied philosophy, and he met some of the German intellectual luminaries of the next generation. I mean, so his friend, Jacob Klein, Hans-Georg Gadamer, Karl Lewis, Hans Arendt, Hans Jonas, and um, I think Gershom Scholem. After he graduated, Strauss went on to earn his PhD at the University of Hamburg, where he wrote on um, a romantic uh, Jacobi. He does, he, and he wrote under um, a man whose name is Ernst Gassirer. Gassirer is, is a famous Kantian, but Strauss doesn't seem to have followed him intellectually at all. Connection seems to have been, I've been told this, so I'm not absolutely sure it's true, that Kassirer was the only German professor of philosophy at the time who was accepting Jewish doctoral students. What, Amazing. What is known is that Strauss had trouble getting a job. He was fortunate enough to win a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Freiburg, where he took classes with Edmund Husserl, the famous phenomenologist. And that's where Strauss encountered even more famous now, Martin Heidegger. Strauss didn't really study with Heidegger, but he, uh, this was a story he told in class, but he's also told it in print that when he went to hear Heidegger lecture on the first paragraph of Aristotle's metaphysics, he went home and he told his Jewish colleague, Franz Rosenzweig, a new star has risen in Germany, even brighter than Max Weber. So great admiration. But he couldn't stay in Freiburg after the year. And um, he finally did get a job as an editor um, at the Academy for the Science of Judaism in Berlin, collecting the essays of Moses Mendelssohn. And then it's to a kind of irony, a critical book review Strauss wrote of Carl Schmitt's The Concept of the Political impressed Schmitt. So Schmitt wrote a letter of recommendation for Strauss who had applied for a Rockefeller fellowship. Strauss won the fellowship. Schmitt went on to become a major defender of the Nazi regime cut off his correspondence with Strauss. Strauss used the fellowship to get out of Germany with his family fleeing the Nazis. Um, but his job problems continued. He couldn't get a job in Paris where he first went or a permanent job in England. So in 1937, he accepted an invitation to come as a lecturer to Columbia University in history. And then he obtained his first permanent job at the New School in New York City. So he was at the New School with a lot of other German emigres until 1949, when he, Robert Hutchins invited him to come to the University of Chicago. And at Chicago, Strauss supervised hundreds of doctoral students. It's hard to imagine. There are many. And these students have gone on to teach at places as disparate as Harvard and Wright Junior College in Chicago. But, you know, he was a teacher of teachers who had students who, again, have become teachers. So he had quite a widespread influence as a teacher. But he also didn't sit on his hands. Um, he wrote quite a few books. 
The best known, I think, is still Natural Right in History, which was um, an expanded edition of some Walgreen lectures he gave early in his time at Chicago. But he also wrote on Hobbes, Spinoza, Machiavelli, Plato, Xenophon, um, lesser known um, Jewish and Arabic thinkers like Moses Maimonides and Al-Farabi, and even the comic poet Aristophanes. And all these books are still available in paperback editions, so people are still reading Strauss. Do either of you have a, just maybe I'll interject here just briefly for a minute, slightly off topic, but do, do, I, do both have a kind of favorite Strauss book? I do. Uh-huh. My, my favorite Strauss book is The City and Man, which I think is a splendid, a splendid book. And I, I think it's particularly important because uh, he was interested particularly in trying to recapture classical thought, classical Greek thought. And it's, uh, that book, I think, is the place where he, where he lays it out as best he can, you know, what they were up to. It's, it's quite a marvelous book. So that's my favorite. How about you, Catherine? I find it um, easier to say what my least favorite is instead of my <laughs> What's that? What is and that favorite? is the argument and action of Plato's laws. I just think that's really a puzzling book. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, so not, to... not the place to start. Not the place no. to start. No. No. Well, none of the late Strauss books is the place to start. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so then back, I guess back to the to the bio. He stays at Chicago for a few decades, and yeah. So so the end was 1967. They still had an age limit, so he was forced to retire. Um, he spent a year at Claremont and Men's College before he went to St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, where he was a distinguished lecturer, and he died there um, almost. I think he was on his way to a lecture when he had to go to the hospital um, in 1973. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the occasion uh, for these, these two essays, what is liberal education and liberal education and responsibility. These um, were, were initially speeches. Um, and so Michael, why don't you just say yeah. a few things if you yeah. want about, about um, you know, the, the initial occasion for the speeches, you know, maybe they relate to one another in, in a kind yeah. of interesting way. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Glad to. Um, it, it's interesting, you know. He said one pl- in one place in one of these speeches. Uh, he said, uh, "Education, in a way, has been the subject of all of my work." But actually, he wrote remarkably little on education, and these are really the only two concentrated statements that he ever made on it. And they were they were both they they were both sparked by particular occasions. So, the one essay, the one called "What Is Liberal Education." was uh, actually a graduation, a commencement address that he gave to the um, basic program in our liberal studies, whatever it's called, at the University of Chicago, which is an adult education program. And the other was an essay he wrote for uh, a professional group, the, I forget what they're called, the... Oh, um, American Foundation for Continuing Education, maybe? The Adult for Adult, I thought it was the Fund for Adult Education. Anyway, the Fund for Adult Education, they were running a conference and they um, had read his earlier essay and so asked him to write another essay for them in which he would explain at greater length one of the statements he had made in the earlier essay. So So the two essays written one year apart from each other um, were most were, were were the main thing that he um, that he wrote on education, 
Um, interestingly, to two different audiences, the one audience was the graduates, uh, adult learners, so to speak. The other, the other audience, um, you might say, education professionals. Interestingly, in the if you, if you read the two essays, you see that Strauss feels a little more simpatico with the uh, adult learners than he does with the professional educators. And if you know anything about Strauss, that may not uh, strike you as too surprising. I think the thing about these essays is that they have, a, each of them has a somewhat different focus. Uh, the first essay, What is Liberal Education?, ends up talking about liberal education as a preparation for what Strauss thought of as the highest human possibility that is for philosophy. And the second essay is actually about philosophy, or sorry, liberal education as a, mm, should we say, as serving certain public goods as, poli as politically relevant. Uh, and the interesting point is that the, both essays culminate in the same recommendation for what education in the modern age should be, which is great books, education, uh, which is interesting because if you look at the two essays, you'll see that the needs of philosophic education and the needs of political education are actually rather different. And so I think the real striking and interesting question that those two essays raise when you read them together is, how does the topic of great books speak to both, both of those concerns uh, in such a way that uh, he can say, that's what, that's what my um, educational philosophy is, is all about. Right. So how can, in other words, how can great books education kind of open individual souls to the possibility of philosophy, but also how can it be become a kind of civic good in the in the public realm, broadly speaking? Is that is that right? That, that's Absolutely. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, in in um, favoring great books, of course, he was a little bit out of the mainstream, I'd have to say. If we look around at uh, university education today, we see the great books has not no role, but not not major. It's not the center of education anymore, except maybe at St. John's College, where he ended up in his last year or two. Uh, and so, you know, one of the I think one of the tasks that he has in these essays is trying to make a case for liberal education as great books education in the face of a lot of resistance to that idea. Um, and so in a way, these are exercises in rhetoric. How can, we how can we convince people that this is what the best education would actually be? So that's what he, that's what he tries to do um, in these essays. Um, do, do either of you know um, the extent to which Strauss faced uh, kind of resistance to great books education at Chicago. I mean, uh, there was there was a was there a kind of core curriculum there at, at the time when he delivered these these essays. Was was he kind of fighting a an action to defend turf or? <laughs> I think defending turf goes with the academy, and at least in, in my experience. So, um, the University of Chicago then and now did have core curricula. So it had a whole series of programs, each of which would claim to be offering a liberal education. And many, but not all of those, prop, those uh, curricular programs featured great books, um, but they didn't approach them the same ways and they didn't have the same books. Uh, 
So I think when we entered the main competitors, Strauss wasn't teaching at a great books program officially. He was teaching philosophy in the political science department. Mm, And so he would start every class by defending, you know, why do we study political philosophy? And then what are, why are we studying this particular book and author? But the scuttlebutt at least was that um, there was a man who was an Aristotelian in the philosophy department, McKeon, and he had his own view of great books. Strauss was not in the social thought or on the Committee on Social Thought. Um, They have a great books focus. Um, Wayne Booth had a rhetoric program. So what was good about Chicago, I think, was at least there was an active discussion of what is liberal education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know um, if this is everyone's experience, but Michael and I had the experience at Carleton College, which is a very selective liberal arts college, trying to get faculty to raise the question Strauss does. What is the liberal education? Silence. <laughs> we don't want to talk about this. Yeah. And why not? Because there is so much disagreement, and that was a very small community. Right. So even even Strauss at the University of Chicago could not um, assume a, a kind of tacit appreciation for for what it was and what it what, how it was being practiced. So that's, although that's you know, one thing to to add to what Catherine said is that um, Strauss was brought to the University of Chicago by Robert Maynard Hutchins, legendary uh, pre- president of Chicago. And Hutchins was himself committed to great books uh, education right. and was, I believe, responsible for the uh, presence of those great books kind of programs, the core program at the University of Chicago. Uh, and so he was he was a supporter of Strauss. And in fact, at one point, I, I think I'm not sure if when he first came, but at least by the time he left, he was the Robert Maynard Hutchins right. professor. So that's that was suitable, I suppose. But one one further thing to be said is that he, Strauss, didn't teach in any of those great books programs in Chicago. That is, they were for the undergraduates. And at that time, Chicago had a completely separate graduate faculty from the faculty that taught those courses. And oh, so I don't know if he ever taught in any of those courses, but mostly he did not. He taught mostly graduate courses. And in the political science department itself, um, they were not friendly to great books. <laughs> right, <laughs> they, right. And they were, uh, uh, many of them were somewhat hostile to Strauss. In fact, it turned out is he sometimes reciprocated. the <laughs> Right, right. So, uh, I mean, one of the things he does when he tries to get, get to make the case for great books education, especially in the first essay, there's a kind of comprehensiveness about what he does in a very short essay. So he begins by raising the question of education uh, for the individual. That is, what is education is good for an individual? And he uh, gives a certain kind of answer to that. And then he moves on to the uh, next answer uh, or next possible answer, which is, well, maybe education is good for uh, society. And he then deals a little bit with, well, what could education contribute to our society right now? And and he's, the answer, the first answer he gives there is something like, it can give us a vision of human excellence. And that leads him to then raise the question, which is really the question he's been wanting to talk about all along. 
well, what is human excellence really? And that's where he turns to the question of philosophy, as I mentioned, the, the main topic of that. And so um, the bulk and the most interesting things I think finally in this essay are really what he says at the end about philosophy yeah. to an audience, none of whom are likely to be philosophers. Right. <laughs> well, so let's let's go back and, and kind of go, go over that ground that you've just laid out, Michael, in a little more little more detail. There, there are three parts to um, the argument about the linkage between liberal education and great books education. He initially uh, suggests that liberal education is about the cultivation of the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, so Catherine, would you, would you mind kind of walking us through just kind of the basics of, of that initial, initial argument? Uh, I, I think so. Um, and actually, I, I think it's maybe more interesting than Michael indicated because. Uh, uh oh. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Disagreement it is. already. I was just trying to set her up, you know, for. You know, rereading this, I, I was impressed with by the extent to which Strauss is responding to objections that are still made. So he starts with what I think would be. Uh, kind of traditional understanding of education. Yes, it deals with cultivation of the mind. And but then he makes almost immediately the first controversial move is he says, well, you know, cultivation, if it's like farming, you need a farmer. Well, if you're going to educate, you need a teacher. Not everybody agrees that you need a teacher or that teachers are such an important part of um, the learning experience, particularly if we are, as he is talking about college um, rather than K through 12. And then from the need for a teacher, he goes on to say, well, and the teacher has to be himself or herself a student, right? So this, he's talking, of course, to the basic program. So education is a lifetime endeavor. You don't just get a credential. You're, it's a process in which you are trying to improve your mind, but you need help, you need guidance. And so it's not just discussion. But then as soon as Strauss, and so where does the guidance come from? Well, who are the teachers of the teachers? You could trace back generations, but the, this buck stops for Strauss with, well, the greatest teachers are the authors of the greatest books, which have enduring interests to tie to your program. And so that's why liberal education should ultimately be study of the great books there are access to the greatest minds and they give us models and help us develop our mind. Right. So he, he says there have to be at some at some point teachers who are not themselves students. Exactly. Right. Well, uh, Is that even I, I was going to say, though, I mean, I, I think he does say that or, or some version of that. But um, could you know, couldn't you say that someone like Hobbes, though, himself, who is, I guess, in Strauss's initial account, a teacher, who is not himself a student, but you couldn't you say that that Hobbes probably would admit that he he would be a student of Thucydides or or Aristotle or something like this? Yes, and so I I was pausing to agree um, with your statement that Strauss would say that well, so the authors of the great books are teachers who aren't students because insofar as he understands them to be philosophers, and he later in the essay makes it clear that. The philosophers are the greatest. They are seekers of wisdom. So if they're still seeking, they are showing us by example how one does that. And but they're still in the process of it. So yeah, I mean that's 
It's a little, I mean, I admit it has a little chicken and egg and the turtles way down, except that there's right. some who are bigger and firmer than the other turtles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe there is a difference between kind of seekers of the highest order and and students, you might you might say. Uh, but then he, in, in that part of the essay, he, he, he kind of comes to a operia of, of a kind, I guess, because he says the greatest minds don't agree with one another, but we're not competent to judge between them. And so he start, he says, I have to start again. And, right. and Michael, this is where he, he, he starts to elaborate a, a more a kind of political account more, yeah. of liberal education. So could you maybe walk right. us through that, kind of a more that social, part of the argument? Yeah, yeah. A more social or more uh, political. I mean, that's another alternative. It seems to me the, the two big alternatives of what education is for are the two he's raised right at the beginning. That is, it's for the development of the individual or it's for to serve social and political needs. And the, I think the contemporary university still recognizes these as two uh, important goals, although I think the emphasis these days is on the social and political side. Um, but nonetheless, the, the other is also somewhat recognized. In any case, these are the two big alternatives about education. And he turns in this context to the social or political side of it. And he but, and he says, well, let's talk about the here and now, about right now. What are our social and political needs? Because it turns out, by implication, the social and political needs of different times are different. And so what are ours? And so that leads him to a kind of, um, I would say, disparaging description of modern society. And he talks of it about as, ma as a mass society. He thinks of it as a society marked by um, consumerism. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, of uh, the greatest symbol of, of that in our time, uh, the Amazon. Uh, An Amazon used to be a special kind of warrior, and now it's become a special kind of shopper. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a good indication of the kind of thing Strauss has in mind of, of what's happened to society in these days. And he's impressed by, as many were, I think, around the time he was writing, and perhaps more should be now, um, he's impressed by the mediocrity that characterizes uh, the society by this sort of easygoing hedonism, characterizes our society, uh, things like that. And that the, the characters, the qualities of human persons who are, which are developed in this, in this kind of society aren't necessarily the kind of qualities that are needed for democracy or any good society, any good political order to survive. I mean, you need higher qualities of person and character in order to make a, make a successful and lasting society. So he, he, in that context, raises the question about the great books or, and about liberal education in general. As he, as he puts it, these can, these can be reminders to us of human greatness and that these reminders of human greatness will presumably perhaps spur us to aspire to more than we might otherwise be aspiring to. It's a way of trying to overcome this kind of, uh, how should we say, this kind of uh, mediocrity. But it's at the very moment when he raises the question of human greatness, he actually has to then trans transit to the question, well, what is it? What is human greatness actually? And so that's, that's where the essay takes a kind of turn towards uh, philosophy. 
And since uh, Catherine has written uh, a book on Plato's philosophers, <laughs> I think she, she could well describe this issue for you. Yeah, let's let's talk. Let's linger on the the, the content of the human greatness of which Strauss is is speaking here. What what does he what does he mean by human greatness in in more concrete way? I th I think this is a place where he's not as explicit as he could be. But the reason for passing the ball to me via Plato is that. Strauss goes via Plato. He says, well, um, you know, problems won't cease and as Plato teaches us until philosophers rule. But then you immediately uh, confront the problem that philosophers are seekers of wisdom. They don't claim to possess it. And Strauss emphasizes, well, greatness has, what we mean by that is very least, very few people. So the first irony is that, yes, we have to look for examples of human greatness, but it's actually not clear to us what that is. That's why we can't understand liberal education simply as the cultivation of the mind, because we don't have a single model. And one of the things that's good about the philosophers is they take different positions. They argue for different understandings of what human greatness is. And so on the one hand, we who don't think that we're great, we're not in a position to judge. Don't think we are these great philosophers. But on the other hand, Strauss says, but you don't have any choice. You don't know, and they say different things. And this is a question that we want um, an answer to. And, and kind of the, the irony is that at our particular time, that question is more pressing because you know, everybody hears for years now, decades now, um, it's just a value judgment. Values are relative. There is no truth with a capital T as um, my students used to say. They're just only opinions. And so Strauss says, hey, that proposition that there isn't any truth and that it's just the values, that's an opinion. You have to ask the question. And if you ask that question, you are engaging in philosophy. And if you engage in philosophy, you're not going to understand everything, but you might at some point have what I would call the light bulb that goes in. You see it in a student's eye when all of a sudden, yeah, I get it. I've never thought of it before. Oh, great. Um, and what Strauss says about that, I think, is. Um, very touching. So he says, and I'm now quoting, this is page eight in the liberalism book. And I don't know, Michael, what's in 3, 18 or, no, 318 or 19 in the um, other. This is so high, so pure, so noble an experience that Aristotle could ascribe it to his God. This experience is entirely independent of whether we understand it primarily as pleasing or displeasing, fair or ugly. It leads us to understand that all evils are in a sense necessary if there is to be understanding. And I, I understand that to mean that you have to have contrasts. By becoming aware of the dignity of the mind, we realize the true ground of the dignity of man and therewith the goodness of the world. Whether we understand it as created or as uncreated, which is the home of man because it is the home of the human mind. So we're back to the importance of the mind. But then in his final paragraph, Strauss concludes, liberal education, which consists in the constant intercourse with the greatest minds, is a training in the highest form of modesty, not to say of humility. It is at the same time a training in boldness. 
It demands from us the complete break with the noise, the rush, the thoughtlessness of the vanity fear of the intellectuals as well as their enemies. It demands from us the boldness implied in the resolve to regard the accepted views, everything is just opinion, as mere opinions, or to regard the average opinions as extreme opinions, which are as likely as to be wrong as most strange or least popular. Liberal education is liberation from vulgarity. It supplies us with an experience of things beautiful. And, and you think he, he thinks this is this experience of things beautiful or, or the understanding of understanding a kind of self-consciousness about the goodness of intellectual discovery. This is something he thinks that is available to, to anyone who's, you know, lucky enough to find themselves in a class on Plato or something. He's, he's not, he's not suggesting that this is something only available to someone who's in the dissertation phase of their <laughs> career or something. And I, I mean, probably quite the contrary. I mean, he, he was teaching mostly graduate students, but I, he, he says, and, one, and I think it's in the liberal education responsibility, that he understood himself as a teacher to teach anyone. They didn't have to pay for it. You didn't have to be a student. You could walk in off the street. If you're interested, he's interested in talking to you. So he doesn't believe that everybody's going to have the same desire to do this, that everybody's going to enjoy it. But there are some people who do, and he's there to encourage them, to help them have this wonderful experience. Right. I think he loved this as, uh, this, as an indication of the natural goodness of the of philosophy that is philosophy understood as the attempt to understand to understand the world uh, that this was proof for him that this was the natural good for a human being um, as opposed to many other alternatives et cetera et cetera so I you know it's interesting I think because this essay in some ways might seem a fairly minor essay because it's a commencement address to a group of you know adult education learners, it wouldn't seem to be one of his major statements. But this here is actually one of his most open and explicit statements about philosophy and its goodness that he makes anywhere in his writings, which maybe is strange because philosophy is such, so much the theme of his writings. Uh, but I, I, I think for these couple pages at the end of this essay, if nothing else, these essays are truly, truly worth uh, one's time. So. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move. We can. I want to come back. Um, kind of come back to the the passage, Catherine, that that you just just read, and and you know talk about the kind of the delights of understanding that he emphasizes when when we talk at the end about about Strauss as a as a teacher. Um, but but let's move to the, the 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 longer essay of of the two. He he talks about he he says explicitly that the the longer essay is, is mostly prompted by a request to elaborate um, on two sentences from the shorter um, address that, that we've talked about. And so I'll just, I'll just read those. Uh, he, he writes, liberal education is the ladder by which we try to ascend from mass democracy to democracy as originally meant. Liberal education is the necessary endeavor to found an aristocracy within mass democratic society. So this is his uh, initial articulation, I would say, of, of the political potential political good or purpose of, of liberal education. Uh, so, so Michael, let's just begin begin there. Talk for a few minutes just just about how the how, how this the second speech 
is is different in, in kind from the first, and and what he means uh, again by by this possibility of founding an aristocracy within democratic mass society. Yeah. Well, let, let me uh, uh, let me begin by uh, just reminding us that in the first essay. Uh, in, he raises the question of the political or social role of education and in the course of answering it, leaves that question entirely behind when he, <laughs> when he turns to the question of philosophy as a good for the individual quite apart from any social benefits. Um, and so he's been forced back to this uh, social political question by this outside group, which he has, I don't know, did they, did they uh, uh, twist his arm, how they got him to write this essay. It, it's striking how reluctant he sounds in the essay to actually to actually have written it. But in any case, in this in this essay, he returns to the theme that he had taken up, touched on, and then moved on from in the first essay. And he uh, he he is asked to address the question of the latter of as you quoted the the passage you quoted, liberal education as the latter to ascend from mass democracy to democracy as originally understood, um, or originally meant, I should say. And what he's going to do in this essay is, like he did in the first essay, he's going to, he's going to deal with the relation between education and politics in stages, so to speak. So he's going to talk about classical politics and the education suited to it, or which is the original democracy. Then he's going to talk about what happened in modern times when politics and philosophy changed a good deal and uh, the education thought to be suited to politics changed a fair amount. And then he's going to talk about our, again, he's going to return to our contemporary education and politics. So this development of his theme of the latter, et cetera, has different meaning, it seems, in different times. And the most interesting for us in our time turns out again to be the last moment, our moment, in which he returns to the theme of great books education. So we were all roads lead back, not to Rome, but to great books. Right, so, right. And he, yeah, and yeah. He, Catherine, again, is going to, I, I, I think is best to tell us about the classical okay yeah, so she, just, she spent a lot of time I, in here I, I sealed my fate by reading a, writing a book a long book on Plato <laughs> 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 um, so Strauss explains um, some you know, a point that's by no means idiosyncratic to, to Strauss um, that the word liberal initially or free had a different meaning for the ancients or classics than it does now. And so in the um, ancient republics um, or democracies in Greece, free was understood first and foremost in opposition to slaves. So slaves were not free, they didn't belong to themselves. But then with regard to education, Strauss points out that there is a broader meaning of freedom because there are many, there were many inhabitants of, of Athens, um, well, children and, and women, of course, um, in addition to slaves, but also all of the majority of people who had to spend all day working for a living. So the artisans, the mechanics, um, farmers, uh, these people were not educated. They didn't have an opportunity to be educated. The real free people were, Strauss always calls them the gentlemen, the, the, the noble and good, because they had the leisure 
because they were wealthy enough to devote themselves to activities you don't undertake in order to keep yourself alive, but you choose to undertake because they're satisfying themselves. And those are from Aristotle to politics and philosophy. So when he, the liberal education was the education of a kind of aristocracy of um, men who thought that they were better than others because they had received a certain kind of education. And that education was dominantly uh, an education of character and taste. It, it was not professional in any sense because they didn't have to support themselves. It included skills. Um, so they had to learn how to read, write, calculate, um, give speeches, how to manage a household, how to manage the city, experiential learning. How to fight. Um, how to fight. Yes, definitely how to fight. Um, but not philosophy. But not right? philosophy. And not great books. I mean, they might have listened to Homer, but this is not a great books education. And I mean, he doesn't say this, but one, one could even think of, the, of education in Britain in the 19th century, the higher civil service, et cetera, that, you know, the gentlemen you're educated to serve in the government. And because you have the education, that qualifies you to serve in the government. But then there was in antiquity as well as in modernity, pretty clear problem. And that problem, which gets worked out over time, is if it's not, if they're not superior by nature, if the people who are ruling in order to maintain their own rule have that position because of their education, couldn't other people get the education and therefore get the rule? And so Strauss points out on the one hand that classical political philosophers like Plato and Aristotle didn't actually think that you ever had, in fact, the rule of these liberally educated aristocrats. What you had were wealthy people and they had advantages over the poor, but let's call a spade a spade or an oligarchy an oligarchy. And the best possible regime you could get practically was some kind of mixture. So you would have the oligarchs with the education, but they would need to get popular consent in one way or another. They need to share the powers of government, particularly judging in court cases with the people or else the people would rebel against the injustice of their rule. Right. So, so you, you, you could have, you know, the, the people, these leisured, leisured men, you know, might be pursuing so-called liberal education uh, for the sake of preserving their wealth and, and 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 privilege, right? I mean, this is this this is the kind of thing you hear about why liberal education is in is in crisis today in elite places, right? It's it's a kind of version of this same dilemma that that Strauss outlines in in the ancient world. So that's very it's very interesting. Oh well, yeah. Um, so at this point, he turns to the modern world and notices that the big change, the big change he identifies here anyway. Uh, with the coming of the modern world is the denial of the pre basic premise of the old, the old world, which was inequality. The modern world is marked by the claim that all men are created equal, as we put it in the Declaration of Independence. And that's, that's the big in innovation that end up, ends up driving modern politics. But as he saw it, modern politics sort of emerged in stages and over time. So at first, the, the affirmation of uh, all men are created equal was put forward. 
but there was not a clear sense that the people therefore must rule. There was a kind of sense that, well, popular, there was popular sovereignty, that is the people were the source of authority and were kind of an ultimate appeal, but nonetheless, they were not the ones who ruled. That there was a kind of uh, popular base to a regime. And Strauss argued that, especially back in the earlier days of modern life, that popular, that popular base was educated in the Bible. That was the core of the education of the people was biblical. And then there was a, a leader, there was a leadership class, was, again, oligarchs basically, but these were oligarchs who definitely had some um, oh, requirements of consent that the people could give. So we find in England, we find a parliament which is elected and which uh, is uh, uh, responsible therefore to its electorate. But of course, this is not a universal electorate. It's fairly so small and uh, selective electorate. Uh, and these folks though also as in the older world were understood to uh, needed a kind of education. And Strauss in this essay, interestingly, looks on uh, John Locke's writing on education as the kind of indication of what kind of education was needed or was thought to be needed anyway for that kind of society. And he says, you know, he says this interesting thing, this education that Locke uh, outlines in his interesting work called Some Thoughts Concerning Education, that this kind of education was in fact an education not a bookish education. It's an education aimed at what Locke calls good breeding. Good breeding. That is what we think of as a very English sort of thing, that they would be a gentleman. And Locke is very clear that this is an education for gentlemen. And it has, I'd say more than the class than in the classical education, it has a bookish element because already by the time of uh, 17th century, we have universities we have a well-developed tradition of uh, intellectual life in the West, and the, those, uh, the monuments of that intellectual life are now being collected and being read. And so we see in Locke's uh, treatment of education, we see that when they're very mature, the students actually do read some important books. But it's not really a great books education. Uh, dancing has a, is almost as large a part in Locke's scheme of education as great books reading. So that tells you that tells you something. And then Strauss goes on that over time, though, this scheme democratized ever more. There was this principle of human equality, which wasn't going to stay satisfied with the kind of uh, two-tier system that came in in the 17th and 18th century. And so we got a reformulation of the idea that <clears throat> moral goodness didn't require a lot of training and proper breeding. It was something that was almost natural to the human beings. It was the good, as, as he puts it, the goodwill uh, citing or uh, referring to Kant or uh, referring to Rousseau compassion or a lot of the philosophers of the state talk about you, something called humanity. And, and so as the notion of what's morally good evolved and different views came to have a certain kind of dominance. The society moved towards a more egalitarian political structure as well until finally we get to our time and we return to that society that he had described briefly in the first essay, the mass society. And this is again where it turns out the great books education is particularly necessary for us. Right. Um, let, let me 
pause, I'll ask a question that, that either of you um, could answer. It strikes me, I mean, both re reading the essay in preparation for the, for the podcast, but just hearing you kind of recount, you and Catherine recount the, the history of liberal education in these different contexts, it, it's, it just seems, it seems kind of blind, blindingly obvious that, that part of the message must be there was no, there, there is no kind of golden age of liberal education. <laughs> they're, they're like what he, what he's after sort of hasn't ever existed. And so I, I'm just wondering what what do you think rhetorically the the purposes of kind of going through this this history and and kind of showing everyone that that um, what he's after certainly didn't exist in the ancient world. It certainly doesn't exist, you know, in the early in the early modern world. And we're going to turn next to the difficulties of of the present day but um i guess rhetorically what what do either of you think he's he's up to by by kind of emphasizing the um the fact that this isn't this isn't something that has has really ever existed um well i like i think you've picked up on um a note that strauss sounds at the conclusion of both of these lectures and that is problem that comes out of the modern revolutions, both politically when they become more democratic and intellectually when um, classical philosophy that's concentrated on what the question, what is a good life is replaced by modern philosophy that concentrates on the relief of the human estate. Mm -hmm. um, that these two, the political and the philosophical developments both coincided in leading people to have unrealistic expectations for what education could do. So, um, and that goes under the, the, you know, the title of the enlightenment. Um, so Strauss talks about our problems are the results actually, are our problems now of people having been convinced by our teachers that there could be a completely rational society. Um, and so one of the things that Strauss thinks proper education, true education that would lead people to have better characters would be um, is to reduce those expectations. So in neither essay does he want to suggest that if you just study the great books, you're gonna be a happy man and you can run for president and reform the most powerful nation in the world. These are unreasonable expectations. And one of the good things about studying the history of philosophy and immersing oneself in the disagreements um, and then looking at that philosophy in terms as he does of education of its history is as he concludes in the liberal education and responsibility essay, you can learn that Marx was a smart man and he got a better education than you did. And Nietzsche <laughs> was another smart man and he got a better education than you did. But you know what? Their ideas had terrible consequences. Um, maybe you need to reconsider. And that's the kind of thing or moderation is what he would desire to be the outcome of a great book's education. Great books can teach you to be humble about your own abilities in light of the achievements of, let's say, Plato or Shakespeare. On the other hand, studying those same great books can show you that all movies are not great, say nothing of TV shows. He doesn't ever suggest, he's quite explicit, in fact, at the end of this essay by saying, liberal education will not solve all our problems. 
liberal education is not for everyone. And that's not just because we're shutting people out or we're making it too expensive. If you made it free, not everybody would want to do this. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. he emphasized, yeah, just pick up on, on that point, Catherine, kind of about the current challenges in, in his own era. Michael, you've talked about mass mass culture um, mm-hmm. as, as a kind of phenomenon that that makes uh, that it makes this this era unfriendly to liberal education. He, he also talks about, as you, as you mentioned, um, Catherine, the relief of man's estate. What 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 does Strauss say about the challenges that kind of the technological society presents to liberal education? Why, why is this a um, kind of a fact of the of the present age that that makes um, the era unfriendly to to liberal education? Uh, well, I'll start and then Michael can jump in. Yeah. Um, I was amazed to see that Strauss was describing the problems that everybody is talking about in the world now. So on the one hand, democratic pop- politics lead to a distrust of the experts. You know, why do they know better than we do? Shouldn't the majority um, choose? You know, it's, um, it's these scientists, they want to tell us what to do. That's not right? Um, Who do they think they are? Right. Um, And on the other hand, um, what's happened to education? He traces that back to the difference between ancient philosophy, formation of character, modern philosophy, knowledge of the world so that we can manipulate it to give us longer lives and make us wealthier. As a result, methodology and political science each scholar does a little piece, and if you have the right method, everybody can do it. So it's the democratization. It doesn't matter whether some people are smarter than others. because You just learn this method, and you do your little piece. Um, so we tend to train in STEM classes, not exclusively, um, but primarily technicians. And then these technicians, well, I mean, are they admirable human beings? No, not necessarily. So there's there's reason for the popular distrust. And that leaves us really with no guidance, partly educational problems, partly political developments. Uh, maybe you could talk about the responses. Well, I would and actually I would I would add uh, add a few a few points okay. to, to what you said, I think. I mean on the one hand, uh, both philosophy uh, rather than being the pursuit of knowledge for uh, the pursuit of understanding per se has become the pursuit of, well, as he puts it, or as earlier philosophers put it, knowledge for the sake of power or the relief of man's estate. That is, they become instruments of control of nature or control of the world. And they, and therefore they become, as he puts it, I think he uses this awkward word, technicized, or people do anyway, if he didn't, they become technicized uh, and instrumentalized. And he makes the argument that morality also becomes instrumentalized. It becomes merely becomes a sort of vehicle for uh, leading a successfully uh, wealth-producing or honor-producing life. Benjamin Franklin's, uh, you know, uh, observation: "Honesty is the best policy." Well, that's you know, that's uh, that's part of what he's getting at. But this technicizing of life has the has the effect of making all of us both too narrow and too lacking in vision needed. So, well, let me put it another way. 
modern life produces more power for human beings, but less capability to control that power wisely. And that has to do with the effect on our way of thinking, on our consciousness of these movements towards technicizing and um, uh, instrumentalizing. So liberal education as an education, especially great books education, education uh, by and in, in uh, thinkers who were not thinking in this way is a way of, well, I think doing two things. One that Catherine emphasized before of producing moderation in our aspirations because our power gives us a sense that we can do things that we really can't successfully accomplish. And so to learn a little moderation as we imbibe the differences of opinion and so on of these thinkers, that's really useful and important. The most important thing, the most important virtue for us, I think Strauss thought was moderation. And the second thing it does is it gives us a breadth of vision that we tend to lack Otherwise, we're more, you know, the specialists who know more and more about less and less. Well, somebody's got to know more about more. And that's the kind of thing I think he thinks this kind of liberal education can at least move us in the direction of. But I have to agree with what Catherine said er earlier, which is he's, he's only moderately hopeful that this is going to solve our, all of our problems. Uh, he's not somebody who thinks, uh, gosh, if you'll just have great books programs all over the country, uh, everything will be that honky-dory. I don't, I don't think he thinks that. So yeah. what about, what about um, I, I just want to read a, a passage from the liberal education responsibility essay that where he lays out what both of you had just talked about. And then I want to connect it to yeah. Strauss's writings and reflections kind of on the discipline of political science that that are kind of interspersed in different in different um, books that he that he writes. Um, so so this is on in the in the Gilden book, it's on page 343. Uh, he, he says, uh, scientific education is in danger of losing its value for the broadening and the deepening of the human being. And the only universal science which is possible on this basis, logic or methodology, becomes itself an affair of and for technicians. Uh, and then he just just skipping skipping down uh, a few lines, he, he says, the giant spectacle thus provided is in the best case exciting and entertaining. It is not instructive and educating. And then he says, 100 pages, no, 10 pages of Herodotus introduce us immeasurably better into the mysterious unity of oneness and variety in human things than many volumes written in the spirit predominant in our age. So if if he didn't, um, you know, he he's not obviously as as Strauss was in in other places. He's he's not shy, I think, about about uh, kind of throwing cold water on the pretensions of his fellow social scientists. Uh -huh. But even if even if he, um, you know, didn't have any utopian hopes in terms of the you know prevalence and and effects of widespread great book study, how do you, how do you think Strauss might might feel just about kind of political science in general today is the, the kind of political science that includes political philosophy or political theory, the kind that, you know, he, he thought that deserved at least a place at the table in political science departments. Is, is, is that become, has the situation become better than was the case maybe when, when Strauss was around? Ah, that's a, that's a good, I think that's a hard question. It seems like a, not, like not that hard a question, but I, it seems to me <laughs> a pretty hard question. 
having been, you know, student ourselves in those, in the years in which Strauss was writing these essays, thinking these thoughts, uh, I'm struck by some points of contrast uh, between then and now. So in those days, what we might call scientism in the social sciences was at a very high point. People were really enthused about the project of a scientific study of politics or scientific study of society altogether. And they were moving forward with new methodologies and new philosophies of science and blah, blah, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. And it seemed a very aggressive movement at that point. And that was a time when there were, in fact, open conflicts, but conversations also about the relative merits of a more philosophical or more humanistic approach to politics, as opposed to uh, this more sci scientific, whatever would be involved in that. And so I think things are a little different now. On the one hand, political philosophy, I think, is in a somewhat weaker position than it was then, in that I think it's being, it had a more prominent role in political science departments than it has now. It's being dropped in many departments. Back in that day, it was required, it was a required study for many, if not all, graduate programs. Now that's not true. <clears throat> a lot of departments have no or maybe one political theorist. So I would say as a institutional matter, political theory is a little weaker. And the scientific approach is a bit stronger. Um, I mean, the sense that almost everybody <laughs> adheres to it, almost everybody else adheres to it, but it's less um, aggressive. Uh, I mean, it seems to me it's more taken for granted, maybe because it's won a lot of victories, uh, so that it it, it no longer uh, raises a question in a sharp edged way. You know, that's a loss in some ways because these debates are still worth having. And some things are now just taken for granted that Strauss at least believed needed to be uh, discussed and opposed, he thought. So what, the big one, a big one I would mention and that he certainly was concerned about was the so-called fact value distinction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That as he, as he understood it, science uh, thought it was, you know, it was good at discovering and validating facts, but it was impossible to, it decided it was impossible scientifically to validate value judgments. So value judgments were, sent off to the realm of uh, imagination or uh, <laughs> you know, prefer mere preference, whatever. Uh, they, they were seen as not scientific. And since political philosophy is at least uh, not entirely, but at least full of what we think of as value, what, what they would think of as value judgments, that's one of the reasons why political philosophy has been sort of elbowed to the edge of, this, of, the, of the profession. Now, at the time in the in the fifties and sixties, when Strauss was very active, this was still a live issue. People would debate it. It was a question. It was a, it was at least debatable. Now, while in the broader philosophic world, I don't think the fact value distinction is taken for granted as it as much. But nonetheless, within the disciplines, within the social sciences, certainly. It's just taken for granted as a true as a true truth, um, and so the sort of easygoing value relativism, which the fact value distinction encourages, seems to me to still prevail in the discipline, not necessarily in the broader society as we see as we're now uh, paralyzed with uh, polarization 
and similar and, and similar sorts of things. But so one of the things Strauss thought was particularly important to do in education was to try to overcome these uh, this thought, the fact value distinction, and another pet peeve he had, or it's a little stronger than a pet peeve, but was uh, another intellectual movement that he called historicism. That is the view that all thought is somehow a reflection of its times, and therefore there is no thought that transcends any given time, which also leads to a kind of relativism. The Strauss thought that, you know, those were two errors which uh, a, a good education needed to address and try to overcome. That, that, and that, that was important both educationally for the development of a mind seeking truth, but also politically, because no society can actually successfully operate if it really believes those things. So that's, those are, anyway, those were parts of what Strauss thought when he applied himself to the immediate question of what to do in education here and now. And it, one of the interesting things, just to follow this up one minute, um, one of the interesting things was that almost every class that Strauss taught, he would preface with a discussion of fact value distinction and of historicism as a, a, try to give a refutation of each of those, that that was the threshold question of every class he taught. Right. Well, let's, yeah, let's transition. Uh, we're probably getting close to the, to the end of our time. And, and so I wanted to end by talking about uh, Strauss as a teacher. In your, in your book, Leo Strauss and the Problem of a Political Philosophy, you have a chapter on these two essays on liberal education. And in the concluding sentence of, of the chapter, you, you write that Strauss was a man who practiced liberal arts education as he preached it. Uh, and so most people don't know much about, about Strauss as a teacher, although they can, they can go to the Leo Strauss Center at the University of Chicago and um, listen to, I think now, most of, of his courses. I think there are, a lot, there, there are a few that are still being put online, but you can, you can hear his, his courses. And so maybe you could say a few things um, you know, about, about your claim that there was this connection between what he thought about liberal education and how and how he himself conducted um, himself in the classroom. Um, I'll just read one more quotation too from the liberal education responsibility essay. At the very beginning of that essay, he says, I own that education is in a sense the subject matter of my teaching and my research, but I am almost solely concerned with the goal or the end of education at its best or highest and very little with its conditions and its how. Uh, and so he doesn't, he's not particularly concerned with pedagogy and, you know, how to go about this or that in the classroom. But nonetheless, you, you claim that, um, you know, his, his practice was in keeping with his principles. So, you know, just talk about Strauss as a teacher, um, if, if you would, for, for a bit. Maybe, Catherine, you want to you wanna start on that one? Well, I guess I'd, I'd start by drawing some connections. So back to the essay on what is liberal education and Strauss is beginning with the necessity of having a teacher. Um, he ended his career at St. John's because his um, close friend Jacob Klein was still in charge of, of St. John's, but Strauss never taught St. John's method. That is, he didn't have two discussion leaders. He didn't forbid the discussion leaders from actually saying very much, but just having the students talk. Um, he thought he took his responsibility as teacher very seriously. And one of the parts of that he thought was working hard in his own study. So he was um, working on the great books that he thought people should study. 
and because, but they're hard. And so he tried to help his students learn how to read these books that are written much more carefully than most of the things we read now. So it wasn't, he didn't have open discussions, the kind, but he, the purpose of the course wasn't to learn what Strauss thought about these books. The purpose of the course as he understood it was to enable the students to understand the arguments being given by any of the authors. So, um, and he knew they disagreed, but he characteristically taught one course on the ancients balanced off by another course in moderns. He would oppose um, theological writings to rationalist writings. There was always this issue or opposition in his teaching. Um, and if you listen to the transcripts or you um, read um, the, the written, the read them, what you see is Strauss is very open to questions from students, more open when he was younger than when he got to be older. There's a lot of laughing in the class. Um, and he's, he says at the beginning, actually, of this liberal education responsibility. I, I had put this into the biography and then I thought, oh, this is in the essay, which I, almost every year I met once with the older students in my department in order to discuss with them how to teach political theory in college. Once on such an occasion, a student asked me whether I could not give him a general rule regarding teaching. Strauss replied, always assume that there is one silent student in your class who is by far superior to you in head and in heart. He meant by this, do not have too high opinion of your own importance and have the highest opinion of your duty, your responsibility. And I think that's, that describes what he was doing. Michael, would you want to add anything to- I would add a, a very yeah. simple point about how, how Strauss taught as he preached. <laughs> He taught great books. I mean, that's you know, I mean, that's a that's the most simple simple way to describe it. I mean, every course that he taught was some sort of great books course, um, and that as I think Catherine emphasized, and I would underline, the point was not to teach my Leo Strauss's philosophy. The point was to help us understand Aristotle's philosophy, Plato's philosophy, Locke's philosophy, Hegel's philosophy. It was not to not to provoke or promote Leo Strauss's philosophy. And it's interesting how little he did that. That is how little he succumbed to that temptation. Not that he never did, occasionally he did. I mean, and, well, those of us who were students there welcomed that. I mean, that was one of the things we were interested in, but nonetheless, that wasn't the point of it. And in his teaching and in his writing, he wanted to give us the philosophers in their own voice. And one of the striking things about Strauss, both as a writer and as a teacher, was the way he attempted to present the philosophers. It wasn't as though it was just line by line or word for word or quoting things from them, but it was rather attempting to reconstruct the thinking that got them where they were going. What's the line of thought that they're pursuing? And uh, that would lead him to, in, a, in effect, take over their voice and present their position in their voice. That was what he aimed at, which led, interestingly enough, to many misunderstandings of what Strauss actually meant. So that over different, at different times, different of Strauss's critics, scholars who study him, have attributed to him 
the positions of Nietzsche, the positions of Machiavelli, the positions. <laughs> right, right. You know, I mean, in other words, <laughs> I mean, he, 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 he was the most schizophrenic person in the world <laughs> if he really thought all these things that scholars think. And I, I think a lot of people just don't notice that this was part of his pedagogy, maybe the most important part of his pedagogy. And it was, uh, for those of us who, uh, who studied it, I think it was a real gift. I mean, it was a model of how one can try to understand a phrase he loved, understand a thinker as he understood himself. That's really what Strauss was trying to do. Um, as he understood himself, meaning reconstruct that line of thought that got us here. That's what he was trying to do. So yeah, I'll add, just add one one thing uh, in in preparation for, for the for the podcast. I, I remembered there's this um, quirky book I have called Masters, and it's mm. a collection of essays uh, from that were originally written for the American Scholar about uh -huh. great teachers. Oh, yeah. And so you know, Hannah Arendt is is in there, and and lots of people, and Strauss is in there, and and Werner Danhauser wrote the the Strauss yeah. essay. It's called Becoming Naive Again. Mm -hmm. And a um, couple of funny things that that he he mentions. I mean, one he 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 Danhauser says, you know, we 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 are quite uh, we sort of the the Straussians, the next generation of 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 teachers are tend tend to be quite severe with our students that we assign a lot of work and mm -hmm. and he says Strauss was actually quite permissive. We could do kind of as much work as as we did or didn't didn't want to do we he says we had to write a eight page essay and and then read it aloud but strauss uh, didn't even bother to collect it sometimes and you know uh, it's, right. it's uh, very funny seven page that was a seven page seven essay page, page? okay <laughs> yeah, yeah so that was one funny detail but then then the other more more important um interesting point that, that he made was in addition to um, the point you just made, Michael, about understanding Hobbes as Hobbes understood himself and kind of walking through the argument and the mindset. Um, Dan Hauser says this this also meant lots of uh, recourse to, to kind of concrete details and concrete kind of life experiences. So if you were talking about the Leviathan, you know, you'd, you'd say, well, what does it mean to be fearful? What is that? What is that like? And so it it, it meant you know, walking, walking through concrete human experiences and, and trying to make that, trying to make kind of books come alive in that way. And that, that kind of struck me as, as um, quite interesting too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that definitely was the way he uh, carried on. And I, I, what we should mention, which we haven't, which is related, I think, to Dan Hauser's essay, Strauss tended to stay away from highfalutin uh, language. Uh, he, uh, unlike a lot of modern, very modern 20th or 21st century uh, philosophic folks, he didn't want to use this uh, fancy language. So things like hermeneutics, that's, he, he was interested in interpretation and how one interprets people, but he would never claim to do hermeneutics, you know, that's just right. too highfalutin. And so he did always want things to have a, a kind of concrete reference. In this regard, I think he tried to do philosophy in the mode of Socrates. That is, you know, Socrates talked about ordinary everyday things uh, with not necessarily ordinary everyday people, but with people more like that than the philosophy faculty at Harvard. Right, right. So, yeah. so uh, Catherine, you mentioned um, that uh, Strauss, when he went to St. John's, was not was not held to the to the St. John's Tudor 
pedagogy. <laughs> he was allowed to do what what he wanted to do. Do, do you do either of you know? Um, I mean, so so we've we've um, you know talked a lot about Strauss's linkage between liberal education and great books education. Did he ever say anything more concrete? about what that might mean in terms of a, of a curriculum? Um, did, it, did it particularly matter to him if you, you know, did you have to start with Homer and, you know, move, move forward to Tocqueville? Or, or did he think a great books education, you know, could, could be conducted in, you know, on a hundred different ways and, and maybe, it, you know, the, the particular instantiation of it, you know, didn't matter so much? That's a bit hard to answer, so it's going to be a weasel. On, on the one hand, I edited um, the transcript of, of course, Michael and I were present at um, one of the few big lecture courses uh, Strauss gave at the University of Chicago that was called Introduction to Political Philosophy. Um, and there, he gave sort of the two sides of the answer to your question, because on the one hand, he began with the problem left to us by positivism and historicism. And then he went backwards through history. So he, he went to Comte, who was the founder of positivism in, in a way. And, but then he noticed that that had been radicalized um, by Nietzsche. And from Nietzsche, he then went to the sources of modern radicalization, um, that is the history of modern philosophy, um, beginning he there he, he emphasizes Hobbes more than Machiavelli, going through Rousseau up to Nietzsche, um, and on the basis of that review, he then goes back to Aristotle, because hmm. he says, um, and, and he actually quoted several times. He would quote Hegel on this that um, modern philosophy takes its conceptual definitions out of Aristotle, but Aristotle made philosophy technical. And that's one of the reasons why Strauss then will go back to Plato himself. But with regard to the study of politics, Strauss's argument was that uh, we've inherited all these terms. I mean, just we've talked democracy, oligarchy, tyranny, popular, the demos, et cetera. They come from Greece and they were sort of systematized by Aristotle. So if we want to understand the frameworks in which we citizens now of the 21st century, understand what's going on around us, we have to understand these terms or concepts and in order to understand the, that we use and in order to understand the concepts, we have to go back to the first place they were formulated and then see the way they were taken over and modified by later thinkers. So Strauss's um, courses had, you know, this bifurcation, they moved in both ways. Hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting because he always had this sense of uh, go, uh, go, and he wasn't quite as, as much this way as Husserl. You know, Husserl always was starting over again. Strauss wasn't always quite starting over again, but there was always a return to stuff, you know, it's not as though oh, I've done Hobbes. I'm never going to, you know, never have to deal with Hobbes again. Um, there was always more to be dealt with in Hobbes or in Aristotle or in Plato, partly because uh, what you're learning is has a dialectical character to it. That I learned something new in Hobbes that might be teaches me something new, and that I'm going to see something new in Plato, and so and so. So, uh, yeah, he didn't seem to actually. He wasn't a he wasn't a projector of curricula in the way you were. Right. 
Yeah, I didn't. Th I didn't. I didn't think so. Um, yeah. But at least yeah. he didn't. Yeah, he that, didn't. that's a good question, though. I never, yeah. never thought of him in that way. Um, when we went to Carlton, we became projectors of curriculum, <laughs> and had uh, kept trying and failing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had some some success for a while, but that wasn't that wasn't what he that wasn't what he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, maybe we can end on on. I have kind of a two part two part question that. that um, can yeah. bring us to conclusion. The first part of it is, in in your judgment, both of your judgments are the challenges to liberal education today. Do they remain the same ones that that as the ones that Strauss lays out in 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 these essays? You know, the technological age, the prejudice towards equality, all of all of those things. So that's sort of part one. And then um, part two is what what parts of Strauss's uh, articulation of liberal education do you think are are most Kind of relevant and and meaningful in in the present context. Okay. Um, so either either of you can. I'll, I'll and we in. should we should even. I'll I want to note before I forget too that that Michael came out earlier as as uh, as against dancing as part of liberal education. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very unsocratic and not according to Zenefon. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm shocked. So I, I was impressed by how much Strauss had put his finger on the problem when he emphasized the tension that I think is just so prevalent now between democracy on the one hand and scientific expertise on the other. And I, and I didn't, I think, put this in the formal remarks, but we just see this in the division between the emphasis on the STEM curriculum um, and then the weakness of the humanities, because the great books are taught as great books in the humanities, not in all humanities courses, but if they're taught, they're certainly taught there. And, and so that's weak. I think maybe what's become stronger, and Strauss points to this in, in other essays, but if we take that opposition as we experience it now um, between the demands of democracy or equality on the one hand and the narrowness um, and kind of amorality of scientific expertise and, and methodology, um, what Strauss saw happening was value relativism, you think what's good is good for you and I'll think what's good is good for me, seems to be gentle. And cultural relativism, well, in your culture, you think it's all right to kill any people and we don't think so, you know, so we'll have toleration. But what's happened now is that the fact that there's no reasoning or defense of any choice makes people in his terms, decisionist, and that hardens the opposition. So what seems to be kind of wishy-gushy, all of a sudden classes, people can't say what they think because they're afraid that somebody else is going to object to it. And they're not going to object to it on the basis of reason. They're going to object to it that just, you know, I don't think you're right and I don't want to talk to you and I have to be with with my with my group. So yeah, that's very good that that the relativism that that he made so prominent such a prominent part of the kind of the dominant spirit of his age that has yielded a kind of decisionism that that has made it even more difficult to to talk about tough and deep deep questions yeah that's very good I th yeah i think it's clear i mean just i mean I, I just add a simple point to what catherine i think well said is if we look around at the university today 
the humanities are on the ropes uh, far more than they were in his day. The humanities were, I think, a good deal stronger in those in those days than they are now. Uh, and you know, I I'd agree with a lot of the critics of the humanities that the humanities, to some degree, brought this on themselves by uh, going crazy. But um, you know, still, it's an unfortunate thing. And the and the power of science is greater than it was, I think, back in. Back in our day, the power of the STEM agenda. Um, not not to say you know I'm not not an enemy of that, but yeah, I think it needs to be supplemented or at least uh, uh, realize we have to realize that there's education towards certain skills and knowledge, and then there's education of a person, and that STEM doesn't do that to educate the person in a in a proper way, and that the humanities education is needed for that. And that we're, you know, as long as we're human, we're always going to need humanities. These and these two, uh, I'll just maybe we can end with with the recommendations for further reading. I actually think these two essays are a great place to begin with Strauss, both because they're, I mean, I guess characteristically well written. Um, mm -hmm. Perhaps not as as complex as some of his other writings, but I think of as you both have have shown today that they both also contain you know, themes that you find all over the place and in the rest of his books. But so if one wants to to kind of read further in, in Strauss and kind of remain at least um, partly wedded to to the theme of liberal education, where, where would you recommend um, people go next? Of course, this is a hard question because as we said, he didn't write anything <laughs> else explicitly on education. Yeah. Um, but as he also said, well, the theme of his work altogether is somewhat educated. You know, right. You know, in another, you know, a place that would be good to recommend would be his his writings on Aristotle, because Aristotle is such an important educator. But yet he had so little written. He wrote so little on Aristotle. I think that's one of the striking facts about Strauss's career is that he wrote, let's say, a, a lot on Xenophon and very little on Aristotle in, in the general assessment of the world. Uh, Aristotle was far the more important uh, figure than than uh, Xenophon. Well, I guess I I I think the Gildan collection is quite good as an introduction to to mm -hmm. Strauss, and I think particularly um, the "What Is Political Philosophy" essay um, because it, that's to be sure that's set in a obviously political context, and he's speaking to people who study politics primarily and not to um, all humanists, for example. But I think he explains why it's important and he explains his approach and the difference between the ancients and the moderns. And the historical aspect of human life and knowledge, I think, um, even though Strauss thought it had its problematic aspects, I mean, that's got to be a central part of the study of the humanities now. And I think he was really aware of that. Um, mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you both for, for agreeing to come on the podcast. And uh, I think our listeners are going to enjoy it. And so thanks again. And we'll, we'll maybe have you back on in the future to talk about someone else. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. 
For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest.